You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Matt Ridley who is a prolific author in a bunch of different domains. I think you began your career as an author writing about evolutionary biology with books like The Origins of Virtue, which I've actually used as a text in a couple of my classes, and The Red Queen, right, which is all about sex and evolution. And then you've got The Genome, Autobiography of a Species in 23 Chapters, Nature versus Nurture, Nature, wait, Nature, Nurture via Nature, one of those things I can't remember. Nature via nurture. That's right. And I, I was trying to, trying to make the point that it wasn't versus, but actually almost nobody noticed that I'd changed the word versus to via. <laughs> I had that book 20 years ago. I couldn't find it, but trust me, I, I think I remember it. <laughs> and then also more recently, you've focused on the human applications of these insights with books like The Evolution of Everything, How New Ideas Emerge, The Rational Optimist, How Prosperity Evolves, and how innovation works and why it flourishes in freedom. And then the most recent book is called Viral, which I guess in a way brings together, I mean, you're uniquely positioned to co-author a book because half of the book is about the biology and about half of it is about the politics. So welcome, Matt. Well, thank you very much for having me on your show. So, you know, I'm someone who has been using insights from evolutionary biology in my business classes and my economics classes now for decades. And I guess I was wondering, why is it that evolutionary thinking is like the gift that keeps on giving, right? How does this whole idea of evolution serve as a as sort of a meta framework that allows us to understand so much? And do you think perhaps we need to spend more time cross-pollinating these high-level modeling ideas across both the natural and the social sciences? Very much so. The message of my book, The Evolution of Everything, is that we don't want to let this insight remain confined to biology. It's just as useful as a way of understanding human society in lots of different aspects, not just economics, but social change as well. Because really, the, the simple idea that if there's variation, if there's trial and error, if there's experimentation going on, then some ideas are going to survive at the expense of others. And that's going to lead to progressive adaptation. That's going to lead to progressive improvement in some technology, in some social habit, whatever it might be. And I reckon that we, we are constantly putting too creationist an interpretation on things we see in the human world. We're looking at how technology evolves. Just to take a simple example, I flew here on an aeroplane. That aeroplane was designed by an intelligent designer. I guess we can agree on that. Or can we? Mm. Because actually, when you think about it, whoever designed that Boeing plane I was on didn't start from scratch. He started from a previous design and made a few changes, a few improvements here and there. And that design came from a previous design, so on, all the way back to the Wright brothers, who themselves did a whole bunch of experiments. And there was trial and error along the way. And sometime in the 1950s, 
They discovered that square windows on the sides of planes led to metal fatigue, which led to crashes. So they abandoned that idea and had these rounded windows that we now have on airplanes. So there's a real sense in which that aeroplane that I came on evolved just as much as it was designed. Now, obviously, it's slightly different from natural selection, from the evolution of a bird or something like that. But less than we think. We tend to put the human world into much too top-down, deliberate a way of thinking and not think of this phenomenon of emergent properties, of emergent improvements that come about gradually, that come about selectively, and that come about often unconsciously. Yeah, and you talk about in the beginning of that book how there was this sort of revolution in our understanding of the biological world, right, that goes back, I mean, Darwin, of course, but even further back, right, to Newton and others, where this idea of the designer and even the watchmaker god ultimately got displaced. But you say that it lives on, this idea of the creator, the meta-designer, it lives on in the social sciences, particularly in our historical accounts of how all of the different things that we see in the world, either scientific or institutional, have come to be. Why is that? Like, what's the attraction of it? Is there something that we want to be true, right? When we uh, subscribe to this kind of creationist view of history? Yes, I think it's what Daniel Dennett calls the intentional stance, that when you see something happen, you look for a deliberate cause of it. And so when lightning kills somebody, you say, aha, God was trying to knock him out or something. You don't just say, well, that was unlucky. <laughs> you, you, you say, the thunderstorm ruined my party. That was vindictive of the man up there. So we've got a slight tendency, even with natural phenomena that we know are natural, to see it in deliberate terms, in, in, see it in, in intentional terms. And so if we're doing that for thunderstorms, then how much more are we doing it for historical events? Who won the war? Was it brilliant generals or was it uh, greater industrial capacity on the victorious um, uh, side? Do you see what I mean? You know, so this brings us to the great man theory of history, which is, of course, a, um, a long-standing uh, debate, goes back to Tolstoy and others, uh, about whether or not Napoleon really made a difference or, or whether um, the, the, the outcome of those wars would have been the same without a, a great man. And one can never, of course, rule out the importance of brilliant generals in battles and brilliant CEOs in companies and things like that. They do make a difference, but at the same time, they are much more than we're prepared to recognize. They are the product of their times rather than the producer of their times. Mm -hmm. Well, look, when I was studying history, I had this notion, which is the long durée, right? And this social scientific view of history imprinted on me. And I was very skeptical and critical of this Carlisle view of the great man. But, you know, once I started teaching business, then I kind of had to start appreciating the role of individuals because it's kind of hard to teach your students who you're pushing out into the world to say, hey, nothing you do is really going to make a huge difference. And if you don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. So do you think that when we map from kind of the positive account of the world to this kind of action-oriented or normative view of the world, do we then have to switch our emphasis? And I guess the next question is, if we believe that 
the innovation is a function of the degree to which this process is able to take place, then are there not some actions that some people can take to either unlock it or suppress it? Yeah. So if you think about the search engine, probably the most useful invention of my lifetime and one that I use every day, it's inevitable that search engines would have become important in the 1990s. Whether Sergey Brin meets Larry Page or not, it was going to happen. Uh, and we know that because there were lots of other companies that invented search engines. Nobody saw it coming. Nobody realized how lucrative search was going to be, for example. Uh, but it didn't have to be called Google. Uh, it didn't have to take the particular form it did. But it, it, there's a sense in which you can lose Larry Page and Sergey Brin and you still get search engines, right? Somebody else would have made as much money, would have become as dominant in the industry. And that makes them feel completely dispensable, if you like. Mm -hmm. And you could make the same argument about Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos or whatever. But in another way, what you're saying is, because it was inevitable that someone would do it, it's all the more impressive that this individual beat the others to it and achieved it. And you know, I think you can say that particularly about Steve Jobs, who bent the history of computing in a direction, a sort of, if you like, a sort of artistic, sort of aesthetic direction that others might not have done. Um, uh, so th there's a sense in which just because you're dispensable as a great business leader, it's all the more impressive if you win the jackpot and do it really well. And I therefore think you can teach both sides of that story. So in a sense, it's actually, there's a greater sense of urgency, right? <laughs> because right. there are others that are lapping at your heels, right? There was a rather nice remark that Francis Crick made, who I wrote a biography of, uh, he, that he, he did have to, he and Watson and Rosalind Franklin did have to beat others to the discovery of the structure of DNA. Leonardo and Shakespeare didn't have to worry about someone else <laughs> writing Hamlet or painting The Last Supper. <laughs> <laughs> so the, 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 there is, a, there's a, the, it, it's in a way all the more impressive when it's inevitable that it's going to happen. Well, now you defined innovation as enhanced forms of the improbable, right? And I liked this definition. Could you maybe elaborate on that, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, this came out of a conversation I had with a great friend of mine and a brilliant guy called John Constable, who thinks a lot about energy and entropy. And the idea is basically that what we do when we innovate is we take random useless arrangements of atoms and turn them into useful arrangements of atoms or useful arrangements of electrons. The, the electrons that are flowing between you and me now as we speak are in a non-random, improbable pattern that carries meaning, that is useful. And so essentially what we're doing when we innovate is we're finding new arrangements of the existing components of the world that happen to deliver useful outcomes for ourselves and other people. And of course, we know from the laws of thermodynamics that to do that, you really do have to insert energy into the system. The, 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 the one thing you have to do to, to defeat the entropy of sort of randomness in the world is to put energy into the system. And what you're creating is a useful structure. And by useful, we really mean improbable. This bottle of water couldn't come about randomly. It's a highly improbable structure. And that then led 
John and me to think about this wonderful idea in Douglas Adams's work, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is the infinite improbability drive, which drives one of the spaceships. What is an infinite improbability drive? It's human innovation. That's what it is. We're constantly discovering improbable ways of arranging atoms in the world. Mm -hmm. Well, look, the law of thermodynamics says that, second law of thermodynamics says that there are some things that remain constant over time, but this seems to suggest that there's something that's not remaining constant. Is there some kind of reduction in entropy or increase in information as innovation grows? Yeah, we're creating improbability, which is basically the same as information, and we're doing so at the expense of energy. So you can reverse entropy, but only locally, Mm -hmm. only by expending energy. So the world has got more disordered, but only because the fuel we used, we burned fossil fuels or whatever it is, to provide the energy to make an improbable structure, Mm -hmm. that fuel got more disordered, but the thing we made with it got more ordered. That's the way I see it in thermodynamic terms. Uh, but it's a fairly basic understanding of the second law of thermodynamics there. Well, the other thing is, I think you talk a bit about how the Darwinian model of blind selection hits a limit when we're trying to understand human innovation, right? And that perhaps thinking about recombination is more useful, right? So like gene swapping. And Darwin didn't have any concept of gene swapping. So could we learn more about innovation by studying bacteria, maybe, than by studying mammals, because bacteria do a whole lot of gene swapping. Yes, bacteria don't have sex, but they do actually exchange genes, and it looks awfully like trade. Here, do you want some of these genes? I'll have some of your genes. And that way they, they spread things like you know, bacteria, uh, antibiotic resistance through the population, etc. Um, arguably, sexual reproduction is the same sort of thing in animals like mammals, like ourselves. Because essentially what you're doing is taking chunks of each chromosome and mixing them with chunks of the same chromosome from someone else to come up with a new combination of chunks of chromosomes, as it were. Recombination of existing genes is the main way that innovation happens in evolutionary biology, much commoner than de novo mutation. And that's true of us too. Most of the new products we produce in the world by innovation are actually just the same old materials combined in new and interesting ways. If you like, you think of the number of things we can make from steel. Um, They're all still steel objects, but we've just put them in different shapes, different strengths, different sizes, and so on. So in that sense, innovation is more about rearranging the world than it is about coming up with completely new things. Every now and then there is something completely new, like a new element that's discovered or a new, well, what's a good example? The the first aeroplane is in a sense a completely new thing because it's flying, but it's made of substances that we've already been playing with. Now, when you think about applying a Darwinian model to innovation, is there a unit of analysis that we should be thinking about? Some people will think in terms of routines, right? Some people will think about traditions. Some people will think in terms of little bits of scientific knowledge. If we're trying to directly map onto innovation, some insight from evolutionary biology, can we use multiple things as units of analysis? I think we can. I I think perhaps we've been a bit misled by the 
usefulness of the concept of the gene in biology, where there is quite a hard and fast definition of a gene. It's a a sequence of DNA that gets translated into making a protein. Mm -hmm. But even that turns out to be a bit of a simplification and that actually a lot of our proteins are modified afterwards in a different process or mix and matched when the gene gets put together or bits are chopped out and put back in and things. So even there, the gene concept does break down a bit. But of course, in our world, a meme, if you like, that's the word that Dawkins invented for a cultural version of a gene, can be anything from a song lyric to a a book-length description of how to build an atom bomb or something like that. You really have to... I think you're never going to find a unit of cultural evolution, a unit of economic evolution, as useful as you might like, uh, if you want to get quantitative with it. There's a wonderful example that... Oh, I can't remember who it was who, who dug this up, but somebody wrote a paper about the evolution of the violin. Yeah. And it started out with a circular hole in the middle of the mm-hmm. um, body of the violin for the reverberation. And then someone turned it into a half moon and then someone made it into a crescent and then someone made it squiggly because they discovered that the longer and thinner it was, the better the reverberation was. Um, now, you know, along the way, there were clever people saying, let's try something else. But on the whole, it was evolving, not mutating in the sense. Mm -hmm. It didn't go straight from the first to the last. It had to go through each of those previous steps. And somebody copies the violins that that are made in their day, but they make a small improvement and then so on. So it's the gradualness that evolution, I think, brings to this conversation that is so useful. Well, I think in the book, How Innovation Works, you're talking a lot about the conditions which facilitate increased innovation. So I guess we could think of this in some way as an increase in the mutation rate, right? Yes. Or increase in evolutionary speed. And what are those conditions? And part of it, I think, as you point out, is greater interchange. So one of the reasons why bat colonies are filled with viruses that are evolving very quickly is simply because the rate of transmission is very high. There are some you know, conditions that can facilitate this. So you know, what are those conditions that kind of accelerate the mutation rate of our ideas. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. And the short answer, the the big answer, the sort of overarching theme that I came to the conclusion at the end was freedom. The freedom to exchange, freedom to trade, which is quite rare in human history. You get the Italian city-states or the Greek city-states or the cities of Song, China, or the Ganges, Delta in India at an earlier stage, et cetera, Victorian Britain, California. These are places where there's international exchange of ideas going on. So that's a a first thing. And for that, you need freedom. You need freedom of movement of people and movement of goods. But you also need the freedom to fail and start again. There's trial and error means there's got to be error. And that's quite a rare phenomenon in human history. If you fail once and you have your head cut off, that's not great. But one of the great advantages of Silicon Valley in in recent decades was that uh, people respected uh, failed attempts at starting companies or uh, starting new devices. Um, And it it comes out again and again if you read the histories of people like Edison and Bezos as well, Jeff Bezos. Uh, they, they all talk about the importance of making mistakes and learning from them. Um, 
uh, there's a wonderful quote from Thomas Edison, I haven't failed, I've just found 5,000 ways that don't work. <laughs> so if freedom's important, if what you really want to do is set people... Oh, yeah, the other reason you need freedom, of course, is because it's no good if somebody thinks they know the answer. If somebody thinks they know what needs to be invented next, it's usually a mistake. What you need is just let a thousand flowers bloom, as Chairman Mao put it, although he didn't, and see what happens. And so that's a kind of negative freeman. The freedom to get the government out the way, to get the boss out the way, to, you know, empires, the Ottoman Empire, the Ming Empire, the, these are organizations which ought to be brilliant at innovation. They're great big free trade areas with a lot of wealth and a lot of order and a lot of peace inside them. All of this should be great for innovation, but they're always very bad at innovation empires. And the reason is because they become too centralized, too top-down. You've got the mandarins at the center telling people what to invent next, subsidizing their friends, and uh, that usually means barriers to entry against their enemies. And one of my real worries about today is that we do seem to be entering a much more sclerotic economic period mm -hmm. where it's harder for insurgents to break into industries and defeat incumbents because a lot of the rules and regulations have been beautifully designed to defend the market share of the existing incumbents. If you can imagine a less liberal society than America where Kodak goes to the government and gets digital photography banned. Now, that sounds a bit silly, but actually there's a wonderful talk recently by the venture capitalist Bill Gurley who talks about the invention of citywide Wi-Fi by a firm that he backed, which was very popular with a lot of mayors and was going great guns until the mayor of Philadelphia adopted it, who was just as keen on the idea. And Comcast was based in Philadelphia and thought, whoa, that's a bad idea. That's a threat to our business. And actually sponsored legislation to have citywide Wi-Fi banned on some spurious grounds of risk or something like that. And something similar happened in the 16th century with coffee, which was banned almost everywhere because the wine and beer industry didn't like this new competitor. It's a surprisingly common pattern that the freedom you really need is the freedom not to have your competition get to the king and demand a ban. Well, you have a lot of stories in there. The one that I found most interesting was about how AT&T had developed the basic building blocks for cellular telephones and had basically sat on it because they saw no good reason to promote it. Yeah, no, it's an extraordinary story that actually, because, you know, it that's one of the few cases where you can argue that, a, that an innovation could have come along decades earlier than it did. You probably could have invented cellular telephony in the 60s or 70s, at least, rather than the 90s. But then the counter argument to that is, well, how come it didn't happen in other countries too? Then if America was going to be that slow about it, why didn't somewhere in Europe take it up? And the answer there is, well, because the telecoms industry was nearly always a nationalized industry with the era of government, and it wasn't allowing competition anywhere else either. So you talk a lot about how large-scale organizations do everything they can to keep innovation at bay, right? Building their moats and their barriers to imitation, barriers to entry. And yet, this seems like a bit of a false dichotomy, right? You talk in other books about how Nurture is natural, right? This dichotomy between you know, what is man-made and what is natural is false because, you know, everything we do has to be natural because we do it. 
it seems like these large companies that emerge to suppress competition to the extent that they're successful, right? They've emerged out of this competitive process. How do we make sense of that? You talk about how the companies on the CAC in France, they're the same companies that have been around for decades and the companies that are at the top of the German league tables have been around for decades. So in a sense, they're kind of the winners in this evolutionary process. Well, the rate of turnover of the biggest companies in the FTSE 100 in England or the S&P 500 has gone down. And that's a worry, I think. I think it's very healthy to have create the creative destruction, great big companies like Kodak just disappearing and others taking their place because that churn is quite natural and it does happen. Now, interestingly, there's a very, and, and, and when you think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that you can get as big and as powerful as, you know, Standard Oil or whatever, mm-hmm. and then a generation later, you're not there at all. Look at what happened to Vodafone, the biggest mobile telephone company in the world, by some margin. I mean, three times as big as all its rivals put together at one point. And yet within a few years after the iPhone and uh, the, the importance of data rather than voice on mobile telephony came along, Vodafone is nothing. It's, it's gone. They are incredibly vulnerable, these big companies. They, they don't look so at the time. You think they'll go on forever, that they're winner takes all, that the, these monopolies will go until there's just sort of one big company running the world, whether it's called Amazon or Apple or whatever it might be. But actually, at some point, like Nineveh and Tyre, they are... In history, as it were. That's not true of cities, by the way. Jeffrey West makes this point, that that once you've found a city, you almost never lose it. You, know, you can argue that Detroit came quite close to evaporating, and Sybaris, a Greek city in the heel of Italy, seems to have disappeared altogether a thousand years ago, but several thousand years ago, but and that's true of some of the cities in Mesopotamia in ancient times, etc. But, you know, there's no danger of London just disappearing or New York. <laughs> so companies are not nearly as permanent as that. They can reinvent themselves to some extent. And there are lots of good stories of companies that did see the need to become, to continue to be innovative, to challenge themselves, to reinvent themselves. Apple's a good example, Procter & Gamble's a good example, which outsourced its innovation to make sure that it stayed fresh. But on the whole, there seems a bit, a, it's a bit like, going back to a biological analogy, elephants. Once an elephant gets to be whatever it is, three tons and 50 years old, why didn't it, why didn't it just go on forever? How come it, it has to die? It seems that there, you know, there are natural life cycles for some of these large aggregations of replicating entities, whether they're companies or animals. But you talk also about some of the ways that companies will extend their life expectancy at the expense of overall innovation through investment in the political process. Oh yeah, no, well, <laughs> that's certainly true. That crony capitalism. Corporate favoritism is a tried and true and tested way to stay in the game, but it tends to come at the expense of innovation and it tends to leave you more and more vulnerable to collapse when you do get to face real competition. I mean, it tends to leave um, the company 
vulnerable to disappearing. Of course, a better analogy is species. We might look at the world and say, look, the the town pigeon is a very successful species. It's all over the world. It's doing really well. It's going to be like that forever. But come back in a million years, it'll be gone. Um, So will we, by the way. (laughs) Uh, And so uh, I just like this idea of nothing is forever. Now, you talk about the history of our thinking around innovation. And it seems like economists don't, they sometimes have trouble kind of understanding innovation because it's like a residual, right? This factor that is difficult to model. It just comes in from outside of the model. Why do you suppose economists have so much trouble? I've interviewed a lot of people who say that economics needs to import insights from outside of economics to better conceptualize how innovation works. Yeah, it. there's some very nice writing about this, and it's really true that right up until a couple of decades ago, economists took innovation as an exogenous factor, as something that happened completely independent of the economic process. And it just happens like manna from heaven. It rains down upon the economy and you're off to the races. But that can't be true, can it? There must be some sense in which by having a vibrant economy, you are creating innovation. But you can't model it. They can't pin it down in their equations. Now, Paul Romer got closest and got the Nobel Prize for doing so. His endogenous growth theory is really about assuming that innovation is a product of growth as well as a cause of growth, if you like. Before that, it's always just been seen as something that comes in from the outside and and rescues you when you're about to hit equilibrium and gives you a kickstart to go on to the next equilibrium. But I still maintain, despite Paul Romer's efforts and others, I still maintain that nobody, whether economists or scientists or management consultants who bang on about innovation till they're blue in the face, really knows what it is and how it works. And that includes me, by the way. I mean, I wrote a book called How Innovation Works, so I claim to know how it works. But you read my book and you find there's a lot of loose ends. There's a lot of mysteries still. This process which is so central to our lives, which is the main event, the main reason we're living lives of far greater comfort than we did uh, 500 years ago, is still somewhat mysterious. We can tell you things like it needs freedom, it needs trial and error and things like that, but we can't really switch it on and switch it off, Mm. let alone tell you when and where it's going to happen. In that sense, it's a surprisingly slippery thing, innovation. Everybody talks about it. Everybody thinks they know about it, but surprisingly few people can really pin it down. And as I say, you can't put it in a mathematical model, at least not in a very convincing way. Well, I think there emerged a consensus, at least in the post-war period, which I guess is described as the linear model, right? So there's primary research. I mean, I'm here at Berkeley. Berkeley is built on primary research, huge grants from the NSF and so forth. And the idea is that there are no intellectual property rights around basic scientific discovery. And so you have this basic scientific discovery take place. And then that insight gets pushed out to the practitioners and practitioners then build technology around it. And I think one of your points is that science is the fruit and not the seed, 
right? And that most of the innovation comes from the tinkerers and the trial and error folks. And then the science comes in to explain what they're doing. Both can be true, right? Yeah. No, I, I don't think I ever say it's the fruit and not the seed. I said sometimes it's the fruit and not the seed. And so, yes, it is possible to have a scientific discovery that then leads to some practical applied science, which then leads to technology, which then leads to economic growth. It starts in a university and it ends up in a company. But quite often it's the other way around. Think of vaccines. We were using them for 200 years before we had the faintest idea how they worked. Uh, Think of steam engines. We invented them and then developed thermodynamics to explain what was going on in them. Mm -hmm. So quite often you start with tinkering with technology and you then have to do the science to find out what you've done and why. And, you know, an awful lot of the digital software innovations of the last generation didn't happen in universities. They happened in companies, but they fed back into academic disciplines as well. My favorite example of this actually is a very recent, very important innovation, which is gene editing, uh, the thing that Jennifer Doudner at at Berkeley and and others um, developed this brilliant, precise tool for altering the sequences of, of genes. And it comes out of Berkeley and MIT and a bunch of other universities, and you say, brilliant, this is a classic example of the linear model. We start with a discovery in basic science, and it then gets applied in the world. But actually, no, they found the idea in the yogurt industry. Mm -hmm. And the yogurt industry was studying bacteria and how they resist viral infections, and they'd come upon these libraries of viral sequences, which were very precisely recognized by the bacteria. They didn't really know what to do with them. It's the academics in the universities who then say, oh, we could use this as a gene editing tool. So it's it's kind of the wrong way around. It starts in industry, goes into academia where it gets applied. But you can make the story more complicated by going back to Francisco Mojica, who first hit upon this idea in, in, in another university, etc. So it goes in, it goes out, it goes from applied to academic and vice versa. Uh, And I think it's important because one of the things politicians do is they think in the linear model terms. They think what we need to do to have more innovation in our country is to spend more money on science. And they're not wrong. It does help. But it's not the only thing that they should be doing. There's a whole bunch of other things like uh, encouraging startups, encouraging experimentation, making it easy to... uh, fail, making it easy to grow a small company, making it easy to challenge incumbents and things like that, which uh, could be even more useful in allowing the innovation to happen, which would then create the funds to go back and do the scientific research and find out what's going on. Now, you describe a couple of cases where science is used as a competitive tool, right? You talk about how the butter industry (laughs) commissioned all these phony studies that made margarine look bad for you and so forth. So science can clearly be corrupted by economic interest, but it can also be politicized. And in the the latest book, Viral, which I guess it was two years ago that the book came out. and 2021. I recall your talk at Stanford. I think probably one of the more disturbing things that came out of that episode is that science was brought into the political arena and that discussions, scientific discussions became difficult to have out in the open. Do you think that's a was a temporary blip or is this something that is a potential worrying trend? I think it's been building for a while. I think if you look at the way science has been behaving 
there's been more and more motivated reasoning creeping in, and uh, this is good, this is bad. Uh, we want science to support our political perspective on, on this area. In the case of the origin of COVID-19, there was a very, very strong desire among a certain group of virologists to rule out the possibility of a lab leak. And they published a paper that made a very feeble attempt to do that, but was quite persuasive because people didn't really understand the topic. We then saw their internal messages before, during, and after the writing of the paper and discovered they didn't even believe their own conclusions themselves. Now, that's a very shocking episode to someone like me, who is a great fan of science and the, uh, and the, the open inquiry. Um, and to find that scientists are basically starting with their conclusions and reasoning to their results rather than the other way around is not a happy situation. I think it's got quite bad in many uh, academic institutions, and I think there needs to be a cleaning out of the Augean stables here. It obviously isn't happening everywhere and anywhere in science. There are plenty of good work going on. But what bothered me particularly about this episode was the failure of other scientists outside that narrow corner of virology to stand up and blow the whistle and say, hang on, this isn't right, come on. Let's have an open-minded discussion about where this virus came from. Let's open ourselves to the possibility that it might have come from a lab. Um, and that way, we'll probably end up doing less harm to virology and biotechnology in general, because we'll be open and honest and say that in one institute in Wuhan, in China, they seem to have done some pretty dangerous and stupid experiments, which may and probably did lead to uh, a pandemic that killed 20 million people. From that, we must learn careful lessons. Instead of which, you get Western scientists insisting it came out of that seafood market when the head of the Chinese CDC who investigated the seafood market said, look, we just can't find any evidence that it did. And you get Western uh, scientists saying, don't increase any regulation of virology. We are the people to regulate our own work. It's illegitimate for anyone else to tell us what we can and can't do. Well, we don't expect um, oil rigs or nuclear power stations to be like that. Why should virology labs be any different? Uh, when uh, you make a mistake on an oil rig and you affect the people who work there and some of the local environment, you make an, a mistake in a virology lab, you can infect the whole world. It, it's very odd to hear such extreme libertarian arguments coming from uh, laboratory scientists but I'm afraid that's what's happened in the last two years. It's been very disillusioning for me, champion science for the whole of my career. Well, you're well positioned, I think, to understand both potential theories, right? The lab leak theory and the zoonosis. I always forget how to say that, zoonosis theory. And the zoonosis theory is one with increased trade, right? With increased communication as our cave village gets bigger and bigger. And now we're only a few steps removed from the other 9 billion people on the planet, we should expect more and more pandemics, right? While we expect all sorts of wonderful scientific advancements to diffuse rapidly, shouldn't we also expect all sorts of, you know, bad things to diffuse rapidly, right? Like TikTok and COVIDs, right? I mean, why should we think that increased connectivity and communication and trade would 
net-net lead to more positive things as opposed to negative things. Your Rational Optimist book is one that emphasizes the positive, but we could just as easily have plagues and pandemics and really bad ideas (laughs) circulate equally as rapidly. Yes and no. If you think of computer viruses, which is a direct metaphor here, but it's a they are a bad thing. They are innovations. People make them. People spread them. 20 years ago, we were really worried that the internet was going to be basically made unusable by these things. It hasn't happened. On the whole, most of us have relatively few problems, God, touch, touching wood, um, with computer viruses these days. The antiviral software is pretty good. Most of our systems are, on the whole, relatively well firewalled against these things. You know, I was reading really apocalyptic stuff 20 years ago about uh, how un- impossible it was going to be to sustain an open internet because of computer viruses. Why did that happen? Because, on the whole, the bad guys had to work in secret and couldn't do open communication of the kind that we know you need, whereas the good guys could. We could crowdsource the solutions. I mean, I read something on social media today by a guy who'd fallen for a scam and was warning others how not to. So we're always going to be one step ahead of them in that sense because we're always going to have the chance to harvest the good stuff and avoid the bad stuff that's spreading. That's one answer to your question. But just to go down to the very specifics of whether or not we're going to see more pandemics, on the one hand, you're right that because of uh, air travel in particular, an outbreak in one city can spread around the world very quickly. But the 1918 flu or the 1890 Russian flu epidemic, they spread around the world really quickly too, and everyone blamed the railways in those days and the steamships and so on, a little more slowly, but the difference wasn't huge. And conversely, I would argue that 150 years ago, a very large portion of humanity spent time rubbing shoulders with nature. They were out there in fields. They were harvesting wild animals to eat. Uh, They were going into caves Cavemen, after all, were going into caves, going deep, deep into caves thousands of years ago, encountering viruses. Whereas today, the only reason to go into a cave in southern China, really, is either because you're a tourist uh, or because you're a virologist looking for viruses. (laughs) And to get quite specific about this, a lot of people said at the beginning of the pandemic, deforestation has caused bats to move into cities where they come into contact with people and things like that. But hang on, southern China has been reforesting faster than almost anywhere on the planet. It's getting greener and greener. People have left the countryside to go and work in the cities, in factories. They're not living in the countryside to the same extent. A lot of the fields of in, in those hilly areas of southern China have reverted to forest. The terraces have grown up thick with trees. The bats are having a lovely time. There's lots of them. They're not stressed. They're, they're doing fine in most of these cases. So the notion that we're encroaching on nature more than we were just isn't true in a lot of these areas, particularly, as I say, southern China. The notion that when we do pick up a virus, we can spread it quicker is true. But the notion that we can spread the warnings quicker is also true. And in the case of this pandemic, 
if the Chinese authorities had reacted uh, more openly in December 2019 and said, help, we've got a problem, people are catching it from other people, doctors are catching it, watch out, better stop airline, aircraft and things like that. Instead of which, they said for three weeks into January 2021, with the backing of the United Nations, when doctors were already dying, they said there is no human-to-human transmission. People are only catching it from animals. That was nonsense, and they knew it. Now, any other country, any more open, America, Britain, Europe, India, that would not have happened. That was a peculiarity of an authoritarian regime that didn't want to lose face by admitting it had a problem, and it simply clamped down on the information, and it persecuted and punished Medics who were warning each other inside the hospitals about this infection. It didn't reward them, it didn't listen to them, it persecuted them. Now, that was a very peculiar set of circumstances that I think meant that this pandemic was most certainly avoidable after it had started, even if it was also avoidable because it might have come out of that laboratory. Now, in The Rational Optimist, part of the message is that these new, improved ideas, techniques, they diffuse. But there are obstacles to this diffusion, and there may even be mechanisms that can diffuse the bad ideas. And it does seem that totalitarian regimes pose a bit of a challenge, right? And in particular, as you describe what happened in China, it seems like bad ideas, false ideas can be diffused relatively rapidly and successfully in certain ecosystems, right? So I think the idea that imported frozen food was the origin of the COVID virus was something that was widely held belief by a lot of people in China. Is there any reason to think that the marketplace of ideas can counter sort of limits that would lead to the proliferation of falsehoods and bad ideas? Well, I have to say I'm a bit disillusioned by the ease with which authoritarian regimes have been able to control information. When you think about the degree to which the Russian population believes the propaganda coming out of its regime, I had thought that the internet, the mobile telephone, social media would enable people to be much more resistant to propaganda than they are. Now, for a while, that was true. Well, it's remarkable how few people who have the ability to use VPNs just simply don't. That's a good point. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. And I do find that I can use social media to check on some of the stuff I'm being told and find the contrarian argument to something that conventional wisdom is trying to shove down my throat. And sometimes I find that, no, I've gone down a conspiracy hole and I'm wrong and I need to back off. We all have that experience too. But I'm afraid uh, it this technology is proving to be valuable to dictators just as radio did a century ago. And that worries me. There was a nice point that somebody made when the Berlin Wall came down. East Germany had lots of televisions, but not very many telephones. Because televisions are a very good tool for dictators. You can pump propaganda out to your population, one to many, whereas telephones are a one-to-one bottom-to-bottom comp tool which you can talk to your friend and, and 
be disloyal to the regime. Well, it's looking like the internet is more of a more like a television than a telephone in that sense. Uh, well, not just because it, of the dissemination of information, but even if you're communicating on WeChat now, those communications are effectively not private. Yeah, exactly. The eavesdropping by the state is a problem. And we saw a little bit of that. I mean, I was very shocked by the Twitter files, by Michael Schellenberger's discovery that the Biden administration and well, and others, other organs of the state had been uh, quite heavily leaning on Twitter to not allow discussion of certain things. You know, Facebook banned conversations about a possible lab leak for at least a year. That's unforgivable, really. It's a perfectly legitimate question. Did this virus start in a lab? Why were some people preventing us from having that conversation? So the fight for free speech is still really important and not won in any generation. And we've never had free speech. We've always had restrictions on speech. But at times it looks like 20 years ago, I would say we were getting quite close to a a world where there really was free speech. I feel we've gone backwards in the last few years. Now, if you had to assign probabilities to the lab leak hypothesis versus the zoonotic hypothesis now... What would it be? I think when you wrote the book, it was more than 50% in favor of lab leak, but not much more than 50%. What odds would you assign now? I always find it difficult to put a number on it because that feels over-precise. Well, I guess, you know, there's beyond a reasonable doubt, there's preponderance (laughs) of the evidence, right? We, in our book, we present both cases and we say that, look, these are both potentially convincing. We don't have enough information to decide. But we make it quite clear that we lean towards Mm. the conclusion that it probably was a lab leak. Since then, I think both Alina Chan and I have moved significantly further towards the it probably was a lab leak. Mm -hmm. I might go as far as to say it very probably was a lab leak. Mm -hmm. The failure of the market hypothesis to come up with anything resembling a plausible possibility, the coincidence of when and where this happened with the kind of research we now know they were doing, Mm -hmm. the degree of refusal on the part of the authorities to share the database and other information that they have about what was going on in the lab, all of that makes it highly likely that it was a laboratory leak that caused this pandemic. Mm -hmm. But I can't rule out that it wasn't. Well, look, scientists are generally comfortable with non-conclusive answers, right? They're comfortable with, this is where the evidence is pointing, but I'm prepared to reverse my position if additional evidence comes in. But it seems like the general public is not content with that, right? So they have to come down on one side or the other. You talk about burden tennis, right? (laughs) Where at some level, before the evidence comes in, people decide where the burden of proof is going to lie. And I guess Why do you suppose for so many people, and I guess I'm very biased because I'm surrounded here in Berkeley, right, where they place the burden, where educated university types place the burden was really, the burden of proof was on the lab leak explanation. Why do you suppose that is? I understand why if, if you're maybe a virologist and you're concerned about your funding and so forth, it might be a horrific thing to contemplate. But why do you suppose just average educated American people felt that the burden of proof was on one side or the other rather than just suspending any prior and just looking at the evidence. Yeah, well, I think it's because 
the argument was made that we've had natural pandemics before, so it's likely that this one was a natural pandemic. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, I think people rather exaggerate the degree to which they think. Well, in your book, you point out that there have been lab leaks before as well, right? Well, exactly. A, there have been lab leaks before, and B, we haven't had that many pandemics. If you think of viruses that have gone global for the first time in the 20th century, The 1918 flu doesn't really count because they had flus before, but let's call that the first. The second one that kills a lot of people as well is is HIV in the 80s. After that, you get uh, SARS-CoV-2 in 2019, 2020. The word pandemic means something that goes global and kills lots of people. We're not just talking about minor epidemics here. So actually, the N number of how many samples we're dealing with of these kind of episodes is so small that it's wrong to put the burden of proof one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And I always argued that it was very odd to be told that uh, the default assumption must be it's a natural pandemic till we find evidence otherwise. I don't think that was a a sensible answer too, at all. Well, last question. You say that in order for innovation to thrive, you need certain conditions, right? Certain types of freedoms. The last couple decades have been, I think the biggest thing that's happened in the geopolitical space is the rise of China, right? And we've seen, when we look at the number of people who have been lifted out of poverty in the last 40 years, most of them have been in China. And there's been this remarkable progress. And I think in part it's because there's been entrepreneurship and there's been the ability to start companies and build companies and generate ideas. It seems like China is going backwards in that respect. Does that mean that people's kind of concerns about the displacement of the American empire and centrality are overblown? Do you think that China is now entering a period where their innovation will stall? Yes, I do. I think that Deng Xiaoping compromised that you could be free to start your own company and you'd have very few rules, many fewer than you face in the West, as long as you don't challenge the Communist Party. That compromise lasted through to Hu Jintao and has been torn up by Xi Jinping, who is now trying to be an economic centralist in the Maoist model and trying to tell people what they should invent, what they should do, what they should trade in a very centralized way. And that will kill the goose that's laying the golden eggs. And as a result, I think you're quite right. The Donald Trump sort of China worry is coming at just the time when China should no longer worry us so much. Militarily, it still worries us. But I'm very aware of the fact, I was living in Washington in the late 1980s when there was a lot of worry about Japan taking over the world, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Japan was the big threat. We've got to stop Japan. We've got to prevent them getting involved. We've got to set up our semiconductor manufacturing industry to, to combat them, etc. They're going to take over Hollywood, blah, blah, blah. It, the Japanese are great people, and they're still a very successful country, but nobody's scared of Japan now. Uh, I suspect the same will soon come to be true of China. And maybe in 20 years' time, if we had this conversation, it would all be about how India is the big threat to America. I don't know. (laughs) Well, Matt, thanks so much for joining me. I have to say all of your books are incredibly enjoyable. I was rereading some of them in preparation for this. And as I said, beginning of the podcast, it's like just reading stuff that I'm so intimately familiar with, because I think I've incorporated all of your thoughts and insights into my outlook on 
the world. Thank you so much. But this book, the re- most recent book, yeah. Viral, is really, really fantastic. It's a wonderful, even-handed and objective assessment of the origins of COVID. So thanks so much. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.